Yeah, well, let, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. I'm David Cooks, and I tell you what. We know that paralysis can take on many forms. It can be physical like mine. It can be something. And what we try to do is feature stories that go from difficult places to fulfilling purpose. What seems impossible can be done by you. Going all the way to Africa for this episode, and I am so excited to have Catherine and Wazy with us. It may knock you down, but don't let it stop you. One of the perspectives that was introduced to me, I think, was just like this whole thing about racism. Growing up in Uganda, um, you know, like there were many, many things that defined me, but my skin color was not one of them. Um, and I remember like one of my reactions being, oh my gosh, like I am black, you know, like it was almost like this realization that, oh my goodness, I'm a black person. I did not actually know that. Got so much to give, a lot of life to live. You must go from paralysis to purpose. Well, I, I got my pen here. Yeah. I'm taking notes. Paralysis to purpose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. I'm your host, David Cooks. Make sure you review, like, and share this podcast. You know, I love my job because I get to speak with some of the most inspiring and intriguing people literally in the world. And today is no exception. We're going all the way to Africa uh, for this episode. And I am so excited to have Catherine Namwazi with us. And she is, uh, she was born and raised in a small village in rural Uganda. Uh, she was able to leave the village and eventually get her education. Some, of, some here in the United States, she went to Hope College where she got her undergraduate degree and she ended up in a place called Oxford. I think that's Cambridge, <laughs> where she got her master's degree in philosophy. And, um, you know, she's back now working in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, giving back. And I can't wait to talk to her about what she's doing now and the importance of giving back. But uh, we are so excited. I know that uh, our listeners are in for a great treat because your story is very inspiring. And so, Catherine, I'd like to welcome you to Paralysis to Purpose the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited too. <laughs> well, let's get started. Um, you inter Introduce us to, to who you are and your family. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in yeah, a small village in Uganda. I spent most of my childhood um, in, you know, like the same village. It's called Kagadi. Um, and I grew up with my mother. Um, so I, so my father, he passed away when I was two years old. Um, so I really have no memory of him whatsoever. So like the person that I grew up with the most was my mom. Um, yeah, so we grew up together in the family. And then when I was about, um, nine, 10 years old, my mom had other kids. Um, so the twins who are my siblings, so Charles and Mary. Um, were born and so then we became you know like we got two more additional people so the four of us you know they like grew up in the village and we uh, stayed together um so I went to when I was um in about like fourth fifth grade I went to the URDT girl school um and it's called the Uganda Rural Development and Training Program so it's essentially an NGO um that has many different aspects you know like many different aspects like different components to it um, and so one of them is actually a girls' school that they run. Um, so it's a free school because um, it's supported and funded by, you know, like donors and, you know, other partners from, uh, from abroad. Um, but the school actually provides free education to talented but disadvantaged girls. 
So most of us that went to the school, um, we came from homes that were, you know, quite vulnerable. So like most of my friends at the school um, were usually, you know, of, you know, like they were usually, you know, victims of like, you know, domestic violence and, you know, they were offended and, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and so with that, the URDT Girls School, we would usually not have had the opportunity to have an education. So what the school then would do is they would go out into the community, they would identify the girls that had potential but were vulnerable, and then they would bring us into the school. Um, it was a boarding school, so then we spent really most of our time at the school. Let's talk about growing up in, in your village. Um, yeah. It sounds to me, at least based on the, re the research and what you provided, that it was a mm -hmm. it was pretty pretty sparse and, and wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily the most wealthy place. Could you talk about mm -hmm. some of the challenges that you and your family faced as you were growing up? I didn't actually know that, um, you know, like the village was described the way it is until I actually left the village. And then I came back and I was like, oh, wait, we are a very um, rural community. <laughs> but so we obviously grew up with, you know, like there was no electricity and there was no running water. There was no paved roads. Uh, when I was growing up, um, there were quite a few people that still had like mad hats and that kind of thing. Um, but I think like that was really just like the way of life. Um, and so it took me leaving the village and then coming back to realize, oh, wow, you know, like there is definitely like a lot better out there than we um you know definitely had um in the village but i mean it was i don't know like i think back at my childhood and i think it was it was you know quite fun you know like we would you know go to the well to pick up water you know like with my friends and we always got in trouble because we would you know spend like i don't know half an hour more playing at the well and then the parents would not be happy because we took so long at the well and um that kind of thing um we would also because like we had no electricity we like cooked you know like on like an open fire on like the three stones i don't know if you've you know something like that um but yeah so like on saturdays you know like my friends and i would go out to the forest to you know collect firewood and you know again would like spend lots of time there playing and that kind of thing and then we'd get in trouble when we came back home for spending too much time there um that sounds <laughs> yeah like, but i think <laughs> sounds like uh kids are the same all over the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, exactly exactly but yeah it's interesting that you did not really understand the poverty mm -hmm. that you lived in until you mm -hmm. saw something different. Can, exactly. What, what, one of the things, we try to talk about three things on the podcast um, mm -hmm. and focus that I think are pillars on the journey of paralysis, from paralysis to purpose. And the first mm -hmm. one is perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and could, would you share a little bit about what you, you know, how you begin to see things differently and how important mm -hmm. perspective was as you began to um, have visions of, of greater things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I mentioned earlier the URDT girls' school that I went to, um, and I think for me actually, like that school was one of. I mean, to this day, actually, I think it was probably one of like the most impactful, you know, like entities on my life. Um, and part of that actually is because like they sort of like were very, very intentional about the kind of education that they gave to us. So they would take most of us from the village, um, you know, from like different villages and, you know, I don't know, that kind of thing. And they would bring us into the education, I mean, like at the school. Um, and part of what they really, really intended to do was like try and like, you know, give us like a different mindset on how we looked at things and, you know, what we thought we could and couldn't do um, and that sort of thing. So it's interesting because like obviously growing up in the village, um, 
there was always this like gender dynamics, you know, where like the boys were seemed, you know, like they were taught or like we were told that the boys were always better at things. And like there were certain things that boys would do better than girls and, you know, certain things that girls couldn't do and that kind of thing. Um, and I think for me, like when I went to the, to the URDT girls school, like that's something that really, really struck me in how they were very, very intentional in showing us that actually there is more. Uh, you could be more, you could be different, you know, you can dream and you can actually, you know, like get what you actually, you know, like dream of and that kind of thing. So I think I think for me like that education was really really impactful and I mean for, like for me even like before I even left the village because you you know like the girls school is you know like in Kagadi still uh, so before I even left the village I guess like personally like for me as a human being I knew that there was definitely more you know like I knew that I could be a woman and still be a doctor I knew that I could be a woman and still be an engineer I knew that I could be a woman and still be all these things that I had you know like you know originally been told that I actually could not have um, and I think like for me that really impacted me but not just that um um, eventually when I was able to actually leave the village and you know I went I got a scholarship to go to the International School of Uganda and then I was able to like meet you know like people from all over the world with different perspectives and different lived lives and you know like that kind of thing um I think like part of what that did for me was it did point me back to my village to see actually what was not right what was missing and like the gaps that still remained uh, but then it also did show me what could be um, and I think for me like that really is what has sort of like grounded my sort of like passion and like my commitment to even now be able to actually come back home because I think like after I was exposed to you know like what you know like what else could be I knew that you know like there was so much more that needed to be done home and I knew that I had to you know eventually come back home and sort of like you know, partner with my community and you know work with people and that kind of thing. So, um, your your siblings. Um, you said your dad passed. You were young and, and did not have a memory of him. Um, yeah. And I, I I think did your mom mom pass also at some point when you were younger and you, and you had to help raise your your siblings. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So so my mom passed when I was fifteen years old. Um, so the twins were about, you know, like four and a half, five years old at that point. Um, and so, yeah, so I automatically became the head of the family because I was the oldest, you know, child. And, you know, like my mom was sort of like my last parent. Um, but then also, I guess, like the twins' dad was just never really, you know, like in the picture. And so like the responsibility really fell on me. Um, but I also, yeah, like, so like I became the parent to my siblings um, and also sort of like, you know, had to take on the responsibility of caring for my grandmother. Um, so our grandmother has since passed away as well. She passed away in 2017, uh, but we were with her like 10 years after mom died. Um, but yes, I became the parent when they were five years old and <laughs> we had to figure life out. So you were, you were, <laughs> you were being the parent, being the oldest, mm -hmm. and that's part of mm -hmm. tradition. If something happens, exactly. the oldest takes over, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you're doing that while you're getting your education and moving forward. Did you? That's a lot. So how how did you manage to do that uh, and the boarding school or the international school? Mm -hmm. How did you work work that out for your your brothers and sisters and you? And sometimes I also ask myself, how did I actually manage to do that? Um, and I say that actually because I mean, I can give you maybe like a little bit of a backstory. So like the community where I come from, um, it's not uncommon to find, you know, kids who are orphaned at a very young age. Um, and I think it's not even just that actually, um, it's just that for us, like kids of my generation, um, we also, I guess, are like the HIV generation, you know, like all of our parents mostly passed away in like the 90s, you know, like, and like, yeah, like the 90s, you know, like the early 2000s and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of us were orphaned um, and left, you know, like the older kids were left to like, you know, become, you know, parents at very young ages. Um, and so for me, like, I think, I mean, speaking of perspective, I already had one perspective or like one sort of like, you know, reality of what could 
could and could not be. You know, like I had seen already kids that had already been offended and how their lives had turned out. Um, so when my last parent passed away, that was absolutely my biggest fear because it, the story never ended well. Um, but so I do think that for me, how I managed to actually do that, it was really a combination of many, many different things. Um, I mean, I think like one of them was, you know, already being privileged enough to actually have, you know, like a school, like to already have an entity that provided me with an education. And that meant that that was one thing that I had to actually worry about less um, because I was receiving that education from the URC Girls School. That meant that I did not have to, you know, personally worry about that. Um, not only that, I do think like people did come along, you know, like in some ways, in different ways and that kind of thing. So like for the twins, for example, uh, you know, like when a mom passed away, um, you know, like after the funeral, I brought them to boarding school um, and their teachers and their school were really, really lenient, you know, because I could not afford to pay. You know, I was like, look, here are the kids. Uh, they're five years old. They need a space to be because I need to be back in boarding school. You know, what do we do? Um, and their teachers were really lenient. They were like, okay, fine, let's bring them. Let's work things out. Let's try and, you know, make things work. Um, and then eventually, obviously, when I joined the International School of Uganda, when I was able to actually, you know, like get the scholarship and join the International School of Uganda, um, I think like many, many other people did come alongside me and they were able to actually help me and they were able to support me. Um, I mean, that's why I met, obviously, mom and dad, you know, like my current parents now, you know, mom and dad, Jim and Yuka. Oh, mm -hmm. it is such a great joy to know that you really never have to make this journey on your own. And mm -hmm. that, exactly. that there are people that have been assigned to your success. You may not mm -hmm. know who they are or how they're going to, how it's going to work out. You had no idea how this was going to work. Exactly. But mm -hmm. you, you kept moving forward. And, and as you did, things fell in place. Yeah. I want to talk just briefly about the importance of education to you. Mm -hmm. And why it was so important, because you went on all the way to Oxford to get mm -hmm. a master's in philosophy of all things. Um, mm -hmm. but, but what is it about education that's so important? Sure. Um, so a lot of things. Um, one of them, actually, I think, I mean, I think like I've always known from a very young age that education was important. And I think like for me, the very first person that taught me that actually was my mother, um, and so my mom, you know, for her education was really, really important because she was the only, um, so first of all, she was the only daughter in a family of 10, um, but she was also the only one that was actually educated out of her whole family. Um, well, did, and I think did, for her. Oh, go ahead. Cause I was going to ask you, <laughs> how did that, how did that work? That exactly. she was the only girl out of all these boys and she's mm -hmm. not supposed to do that. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and she, did you ever get a chance to talk to her about that and how that, how I she did, did actually. What, I what did. And I think like for her, <laughs> yeah, I think like for her, that actually was really interesting um, because like, so, so you're right. When she was growing up, um, girls were not necessarily encouraged actually that, you know, get an education. They were always encouraged to like, you know, get married and, you know, bring money home in form of that, you know, dowry and that kind of thing. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was actually a village chief. And so he actually had the money and the means to send all his kids to school. Um, he offered all my, like all my uncles, he offered that he would actually send them to school and none of them wanted an education. So he was like, okay, great. 
does my daughter want to go to school? And my mom was like, absolutely. Um, so then my mom decided, my mom and her dad were like, okay, great, you know, we're going to do this. So like she went to school. Um, and my mom always told me actually how, you know, like when she was going to school, um, like her siblings and her mom, like her mother were incredibly, incredibly unhappy. You know, they would say, you're wasting money. She's meant to be married. Like she has to make money for us and that kind of thing. Um, and the funny thing actually that she always told me was that, so because of that, uh, her own mother decided that she was not going to support her in education. So my grandmother did not get up a single day to like make food for my mom to like bring to school or like walk her to school when she was working, you know, when it was dark. And so that responsibility fell on my grandfather, who also at the time, men, you know, like if a man was found cooking in the kitchen, everybody was like, oh my gosh, he's a spoiled boy. Like, what is he doing? Why are you cooking him and should be doing that? But my grandfather was like, my daughter wants an education, you know, like none of my sons want an education. Um, her mother won't support her. So I'm going to take on the role. Um, and I think my mom really told me that story because I think she saw firsthand like how different her life turned out to that of her siblings. Um, and so I became the head of my family when I was 15. But I think like the same thing actually happened to my mom as well, because she was the only person who was educated in her family. And so that meant that eventually, you know, she became the head of the family, you know, especially after her father passed away as well. You know, so like when I was growing up, what I would remember is like we always had cousins staying over and like my mom was paying school fees for like all these, I don't know, cousins and I don't even know nieces and nephews and all of that stuff. Um, but I think it's because like, you know, she actually received an education. Um, she went on to become a nurse. And so like she became the pillar of her family. So for me growing up, actually, that was something that my mom just really, really instilled in me. I don't know what, but like she always said, whatever you do, make sure that you actually get an education. Um, and so speaking of perseverance, actually, that was one of the things like, so the, the week that my mother died, um, we were actually doing final exams at school. Um, and I remember somebody coming and, you know, telling me, hey, by the way, we need to go home because your mom just passed away and all of that. And I was really sad and I went home, you know, we went for the funeral um, and then I came back to school. And when I came back to school, I wanted to mourn, you know, like I wanted to mourn my mother. I wanted to just not, like I wanted to check out. I wanted to not participate. I wanted to not engage in that kind of thing. Um, but speaking of like perseverance, but also perspective, actually, I remember my teachers, because they had been teaching me, uh, some of them had been really good friends of my mom and they knew how important education was to her and that kind of thing. Um, I remember all of them sort of like putting up like this, you know, sort of like united front and saying, Catherine, no matter what happens, you must continue with school. And I'll never forget, but like one of my teachers uh, pulled me to the side right after I came back from the funeral. And she said, Catherine, the only way you can honor your mom is by doing what she always wanted you to do. Um, and in that moment, like I knew for me, like my mom, education was really, really important. But and your teachers were amazing. They were like, exactly. look, we, we understand you had a loss and it's a real mm -hmm. loss. Your mom's gone. And but but you must continue on. And, and exactly. that's exactly what you did. Let's pause right there, and in just a minute, I'll ask Catherine about the two special people whose unconditional love helped her discover and realize her purpose. They're the reason I've entitled this episode, No Longer an Orphan. You're listening to Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast, where we feature stories that go from difficult places to fulfilling purpose. I'm David Cooks, and I'm convinced that having the right perspective is essential. As I've said before, how you see it will determine how you attack it. Well, back in season one, I asked my guest Thomas Williams how he went from nearly giving up on his college football career to playing in the NFL. His story illustrates the power of perspective. And I will never forget, right at the point when I was getting ready to quit football, that was going into my senior year, I talked to a coach, Ken Norton Jr. one day, 
And I said, coach, I want to quit. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be done. And I said, what's the reason of fighting a fight that you are probably not going to be able to win? And I think more than anything, which the thing that I love about coach Norton, and I think great leaders and great employers and great coaches, you know, whether it's business or, or athletics is that they coach the person first and the employee and player second, right? The bad ones, they coach the, the player and the employee first. It's straight, strictly business, but not the person. And Coach Norton knew what football meant to me and going to the NFL. And he was like, well, you can quit. And we'll never know if you were good enough or you can make it. He said, or, or you can give your senior year every single thing that you have, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your might. And if the NFL doesn't accept you, then maybe they weren't good enough for you. And the day he told me that, maybe they're not good enough for you. It shifted the perspective of I'm in control. I'm the one that's interviewing the NFL. Are you worth my time? Are you worth my energy? Are you worth my body? Are you worth my brain? Are you worth my sacrifice? Are you worth all of these things? And when he told that to me, I said, all right, I'm gonna give it a go. And that's right. I'm gonna give it everything I have. For the next 365 days, I'm gonna give it everything I have. And if I don't get selected, you guys don't deserve me because my best is good enough for me, regardless if, if it's good enough for you or not. That's Thomas Williams, former NFL player, who now motivates and encourages others facing transitions in their lives. There's a lot more to our conversation, which you can listen to in the episode entitled Dead at 16 from season one. Now it's time for part two of this week's episode with my guest, Catherine Namwazi. We talked about different people that have been in your life that have helped you on this journey. Um, you are, you, you met a, a couple of doctors that were um, in Kampala, I believe, right? Uganda. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you, and they're your they're your mom and dad now is what you call them, and that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, Doctor Doctor the Doctor Campbells I call them Jim and Yuka. <laughs> Jim and Yuka Campbell. Um, tell us about that relationship and and what that has meant to you um, as yeah. we begin to go from the the all girls school to the international school and then mm-hmm. you're about to go across to the United States uh, mm-hmm. to get some education. So let's talk yeah. about Jim, Jim and Yuka. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't even know um, where to begin, but I think, um, so I remember, so I got the scholarship. So I was finishing up my O-levels, uh, which is sort of like, you know, 10th grade uh, in the Ugandan education system. Um, and I'm not going to lie, like things were really getting tough. So I actually was not sure that I was going to continue, you know, like in school myself. I was really, really struggling with that decision because I think it was getting harder to keep myself and my siblings in school um, and that kind of thing. And like the girls' school was ending at some point. So then one of my teachers, again, told me about the scholarship at the International School of Uganda, um, where like ISU, the International School of Uganda, had decided, like the parents had come together and they had decided that they wanted to create a scholarship um, and offer, you know, like an edu- like an ISU education to a Ugandan, you know, student or kid who would otherwise never afford an ISU education. So it's an international school. It's a really good school. They offer the IB, you know, diploma and that kind of thing. So one of my teachers, I think, knew about me and my situation and all of that. And she knew that things were getting really tough for me. So she said, hey, why don't you actually try and apply for this scholarship? So I gave it my absolute, like I gave it my everything. Um, <laughs> and obviously I got lucky and then I got the scholarship. Um, and so that meant that I actually had to leave my village and travel all the way to Kampala to be able to actually um, to go to the school and all of that. 
So at the school, because my home was so far away, um, the school decided that, you know, the scholarship students should be able to, or like it would be good if they would get, you know, like a host family to sort of like, you know, stay with them and that kind of thing. Um, so then my mom and dad, um, so dad actually at that point was the chair of the scholarship committee, I think. Um, so then he was like, you know, you know, my family will take in whichever student, you know, like gets the scholarship and all of that. And turns out that it was me. Uh, so then I joined the Campbells um, and lived with them. Um, I think for me, like that relationship really, like it, means a lot of things for me uh like many 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 different things um for starters i think like for me like it was like it was so good to be a child again um it was so good to be able to breathe and say i do not have to be the parent again um and i think like i just had really held you know like i had taken on this responsibility you know like you know from my mom and i was caring for my siblings i was caring for my mom you know like for my grandmother um and that meant that i had become the sole provider you know of like medical care and education and food and clothing and all of that stuff um and i think for me even like the lesser things i think are the ones that really got to me like being able to think about what are we having for dinner you know like i like I did not want to make that decision, you know, uh, but like I had five, six year olds that wanted to eat and they were like, what am I having for breakfast? You know what I'm having for lunch and dinner. And I was like, can you please just leave me alone? Um, but I think like for me, <laughs> I have to say, like, I think for me, the thing that really struck me the most is like when I moved in with the Campbells, um, for me, like it was just like having that sense of relief, knowing that I do not have to be the adult anymore, you know, like in the house, you know, I can actually be a child again. Um, and so I actually automatically called them mom and dad. Cause I think like for me, that was just like, it was just like, it was, I don't know, like, it, I think it, yeah, it was something that I really, really needed at that point. Um, but not only that, actually, like, they've really been, like, incredibly, incredibly supportive. Um, they really just, like, took me in and just, like, completely, completely loved me, um, you know, like, unconditionally. I mean, we speak of, like, you know, you speak of, like, Christianity and you sort of, like, you know, talk about, like, the love that, you know, the Bible describes and that kind of thing. Um, and I think for me, like, if there is anything that I've actually sort of, like, you know, realized it's this, you know, absolute, you know, unconditional love, knowing that there was actually nothing that I did to earn that love, but it was just there. Like, it was given to me, you know, fully and wholly, and I did not have to earn it you know like I but I also could not you know like I could not unearn it um right. and I remember like one of the moments actually like when I first joined um ISU I got on like my first uh, like when I first joined like the first few months um I did well in school and I think I got on like the honor roll or something like that um and I remember dad coming into my bedroom and I'll never forget what he told me you know he said Catherine look I know you don't have parents of your own but I want you to know that mom and I are very very proud of you um and so for me like that like I knew I was home right because I knew education was really important to my mom you know like I knew and so I knew that's the kind of thing that, that my mother would have said to me um you know like she valued you know my you know academic success and that kind of thing so when dad told me that like for me you know like that just it broke down lots and lots of barriers for me like I knew I was actually home um and they just really just loved me and I got a new set of family I got a new set you know like siblings you know like I got old brothers because <laughs> 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 there is four boys um so I got old brothers but like I just really became part of the family and like I was really supported a lot you know like when I was you know like in the U.S. I think for me that made a very big difference you know like going from you know, going from, you know, like the village, you know, to ISU and then like, you know, on to America. But I think that was really easy again because I already had my family, you know, like in the US. And when I was going to college, um, you know, like um, dad and like one of the boys, I think it was Matthew, they actually drove out all the way to Michigan with me and, you know, they helped me move into college and that kind of thing. And when I was in Oxford, you know, like mom would come, you know, like she came every year, you know, like, you know, bringing me Christmas presents and, you know, would, you know, still see each other and that kind of thing. So I think like for me, um, I think like what that relationship really, yeah, I guess like symbolizes or like what it's really taught me. It's just like 
it's love, you know, like I cannot describe it any other way. It's just like this unconditional love. Like I find so much safety in that. Um, and it's interesting because like that for me was one of the things that I feared the most, you know, like after my mom died, I think he was just like, sometimes like you're not sure, you know, like if you're loved and you feel like you have to under love and you feel like, you know, if I'm not good, if I'm not kind, if I'm not this, if I'm not this, you know, like I will not be loved back and that kind of thing. Um, and I think like for mom and dad, like it was very clear to me that I will never, and honest, like I will never not be loved. And, you know, like I will always be loved and I think for me like that like there was so much safety in that that I breathed you know like I was able to breathe and I was able to actually be a child again and that for me I think meant you know like it, it meant everything to me and that, that's a fantastic story because they were uh in Uganda doing some mm -hmm. research um I think was it AIDS research I think um uh yeah I think mom works with the yeah infectious disease institutes I think she worked a lot with yeah like uh yeah uh the HIV patients and then dad worked with the CDC um yeah, yeah. so they were they were there on a mission on assignment <laughs> yeah you know just just happen you know to uh come across <laughs> your path how did you meeting Jim and Yuka the Campbells um impact your siblings and your relationship with your siblings how, how did that how did that impact that um i mean i think for starters i think um i feel like i was able to actually love and care more once i actually you know sort of like had my own cup filled um like i think he was maybe getting like he was drained a little too much um and i think like for me being able to be supported i think meant that i could actually support my siblings you know even more um but even like in more practical ways you know so like when i was able to like babysit like one of my siblings i mean so that was one of the things that i learned when i joined the international school that when mom and dad went out you know like and you know they left the little kids home jack and jt and they asked me and tom to babysit they paid that and i was like mm, okay i can do this uh, <laughs> um <laughs> uh, but i think so I think it was even just like little things like that, right? Like being able to then, you know, even like have a little bit more to like financially support my siblings um, and that sort of thing. Um, but then also, yeah, I mean, just like different things. I think like for me, again, like the biggest thing, um, and again, like I keep on coming back to this thing of like love and feeling other people and that kind of thing. Because I think for me, that really is the most important thing um, that I was given and like the most important thing that I also have to give to other people. Um, so I think like most fundamentally for me, it was like once my cup was filled and I felt like it was actually a lot easier for me to then like, you know, you know give to my siblings and to love them and to support them and, you know, that kind of thing. So you went to Holland, Michigan. And I, I, yes. I, live, I live in Wisconsin and I've taken the ferry over mm -hmm. and I, I love Holland and the, the uh, tulips and the whole downtown mm -hmm. area, beautiful campus. Um, mm -hmm. your college experience like uh, being, being uh, an international student here in the mm -hmm. United States? It was a really, overall, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Um, and I think, again, it's like a combination of many things that actually made it, you know, like a wonderful experience for me. Um, I think I was able to grow in many, many ways. Um, I was able to expand my perspectives, you know, like being able to just like be in class with people from, you know, different communities that have, you know, had different lifestyles growing up and that kind of thing. Um, but I think I guess like maybe part of that is because of, um, I mean, like, so coming in, you know, I think my experience at the international school and being able to like have mom and dad and like tap into their own community and that kind of thing, um, it did prepare me really, really well for hope. Um, so I always say actually like the most cultural shock I've ever gotten was in Kampala at the international school and not necessarily actually at Hope. And I think that's because like I came straight from the village to the international school um, and that for me like that change was really, really big. But I think the school and the community 
community really prepared me well to be able to actually thrive at home. So I think in that sense, I honestly felt like a celebrity on campus because, you know, again, like there was very few of us, you know, from, you know, from, I don't know, from the African continent, but just like, even just like the student, you know, the international student body in general. So, and I love to talk as you might have figured out, you know, by now. So like, I was always asked to like, you know, speak about things and to like give my perspective and I would share in class and that kind of thing. So like that aspect of it, I think I really loved. Um, and I think also like Hope being a very, you know, like being a Christian school, um, I think like my first impression actually when I went to the school, one of my teachers, uh, Miss Sonia actually asked me, um, you know, like what was your impression of Hope? And I remember thinking like for me, like my first sort of like, you know, um, observation was that the people at Hope were more Christian than the school itself. They really pour themselves out and like they really support you. And I remember like I had a job on campus and I worked with a lady called Miss RJ, uh, Regent Walters, and she just loved me as like her own child and she supported me and like, and you know like my professors my you know like academic supervisor and all of that like they were really really you know like incredibly supportive people um so like in that sense I think like I fit in quite well but on the other hand as well I have to say um I think for me like going to the U.S. in general um and maybe just like even hope um I think like it one of the perspectives that was introduced to me I think was just like this whole thing about racism um and I think for me like that was the first time that I sort of like had to actually grapple and sort of like understand what that actually meant um and it was interesting because I again like being I, I don't know I mean like there were many different explanations but like for me I never like growing up in Uganda um you know like there were many many things that defined me but my skin color was not one of them um and I remember like one of my reactions being you know like when I had you know like racism and racism and all of that I was like oh my gosh like I'm black you know like it was almost like this realization that oh my goodness I'm a black person I did not actually know that um <laughs> and I think but I think it's because you know like when like when I'm growing up for me you know there were other identity markers so like my you know like my sex for example like being a woman and educated and you know those were things that for me defined me so like I think one of the student groups that I was part of um they made us do this exercise where they would say describe yourself like you know introduce yourself um and it was interesting because like all of my african-american friends they would say i'm an african-american blah 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 whereas for me it was i'm an educated ugandan woman you know like those were the sort of like the things that i used to describe myself but not necessarily race um and i think for me like again like my parents played a very big part in that because i remember not being able to understand like i was not able to actually understand um the struggles but also like the depth and just like the um like just like how much ingrained you know like racism is and different things and all of that um and i remember like there were a few times when i felt like my african-american friends and myself had very like we had very different experiences at hope you know like for me i loved it you know like i felt like a celebrity i was asked to talk and share my perspectives and that kind of thing and you know for me like when somebody you know asked something like hey can i touch your hair hey can i do this like for me my interpretation was never that you know this is rude this is racism or anything like that um for me it was just like yeah sure absolutely you know like because and i think maybe it's because i did not actually have that lens uh, but my african-american friends like the experience actually was quite different in that sense um and i remember i think it must have been like the first um like the first christmas when i was at home or maybe like the second one i remember going home and like i was having this conversation with dad in the car and i was like i have friends who i feel like they're probably not happy because so like a lot of my friends you know like did not have or they feel i felt like our experiences were actually different um 
And I remember dad actually gave me a book, you know, like To Kill a Mockingbird, um, to read that book. Um, and then he gave me another. And then, and I read like another one of like Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and all of that. And I think for me, like at that point, it started to sink in. Like I started to actually see and I started to actually understand and I started to actually like relate and sort of like, you know, understand other people's stories and, you know, perspectives and experiences and that kind of thing. Um, so I think for me, like that's, you know, like that is something that I do not take lightly because I do think like I did have quite a bit of ignorance, I think as well, you know, coming in and that's because, you know, like, again, that's something that I hadn't really grown up with. It's something that I hadn't sort of like had to grow up with and all of that. Um, so I think like coming out of America, for me, I think like that was something that really had a very big and profound, you know, like impact on me. Um, I think like without my American education, like without my experience at home, you know, like on campus and like the hard conversations that I had with friends, but also like with my parents and all of that, like I feel like I would never, like I would never have understood or even like started to understand, you know, like as much as I actually, you know, sort of like do right now. And that that is some great insight uh, because um, there's often this divide between mm -hmm. Americans of African descent and African African Americans and their experiences are vastly different. But mm -hmm. what you did is what everybody kind of needs to do is to try to see it through the lens of someone else. And mm -hmm. and by doing so, you begin to you may not understand it all or have experienced it all, but you develop mm -hmm. you develop some sympathy and empathy, and you're like, okay, now I get it. You know, but that's exactly. that's that's growth. I mean, that's that's growth and and um, if you're not willing to be open and grow, then, I mean, you could have had your experience, uh, done great, graduated, came, went to Oxford mm -hmm. without having a better understanding of, of some of the people that you were, that looked like you, uh, that didn't have the exact same experience. It doesn't make you any better or, or less better than them or anything like that. And I think sometimes that's the struggle that we face is that, yeah. um, it doesn't make me any better or any worse because my experience it hasn't been exactly the same as yours. Hopefully we can still work together and move forward. That's just a great story. We'll get back to David's conversation with Catherine Namwezi in part three of the podcast in just a minute. David narrates his own story in the audiobook Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose, which is now available to purchase and download. Here's a brief sample in which he recalls how several key friendships helped him navigate the challenges of getting his high school education. There were four classmates in particular who made my transition from a life of walking to life in a wheelchair as pleasant and productive as possible. Robert Tomlinson, also known as RT, William Bill Thompson, Jan Mueller, and Jim Van Eerden. They made sure I went to school dances, sporting events, and they welcomed me into their homes and included me on their social calendars. We were an eclectic circle of friends with diverse backgrounds, personalities, political leanings, religious outlooks, and economic statuses. Still, each person found his own way of confirming to me that my life wasn't over, even if I'd have to spend the rest of my high school career in a wheelchair. Four friends, four different walks of life, Yet each person fulfilled a different purpose for me, and all four demonstrated an unconditional commitment to helping me navigate my obstacles. The obstacles along the way didn't redefine me, but they did redirect me. So often in our minds, we make obstacles permanent in their existence, which causes us to stop. As I was redirected 
to Bob, Jan, Jim, and Bill, we helped each other move forward in life. In May of 1982, I accomplished my goal of graduating from high school the same year as my class. The irony of completing this goal was its location, Humphrey Gymnasium, the place I dreamed about playing basketball for Marquette High School. Humphrey Gymnasium no longer served as a reminder for what I didn't get to accomplish on the court. It served as the place where I could get a standing ovation, not for making a basket or getting a steal, but for beating the odds, overcoming obstacles, and finishing the course. That was David Cooks narrating an excerpt from Chapter 4 of his book, Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose. Treat yourself to the audiobook. You'll be inspired as you learn proven principles for navigating your own challenges and route to discovering your purpose. Now, let's get back to the podcast. You leave Holland, Michigan. Uh, I tell you what, they have some of the best apple cider donuts. And, and, and <laughs> they do. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, you, I used to go. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> but they are really good. Uh, so you, you end up at Oxford. Mm-hmm. What a great you! So you've had all this high level education and different exposure. Mm-hmm. So you, I'm sure you fit right in at Oxford. Um, why philosophy? Yeah, so it's actually so it's actually a master's of philosophy in international development. Uh, so like that was definitely that aspect that was added on for like international development. Um, so I think for me that was maybe the draw international development um, and I think like part of that is because of you know like what I already said before um, I think for me like living home and being in exposed like different perspectives and that kind of thing um, it really built in me this desire to want to actually come back home and you know I don't I mean I don't like to say work for like work with but I wanted to like come back and partner you know, like I wanted to come back and partner, you know, like with the people in my community to sort of like, you know, bring on, you know, like different change and that kind of thing. Um, and I think like, it's not even just that, I think it's even just like my story and just like the observation of like how things turned out for us. You know, like for me, I always ask myself questions like, you know, what went wrong? You know, like why did anyone anywhere trust a 15 year old with two five year olds, you know, um, that obviously like there is something very, very wrong with the system. Um, you know, like there is, you know, I was a child myself and I should never have been trusted to be, you know, like the sole caretaker of 15 year olds and that kind of thing. Um, so one of them is that my sister actually was affected very, very much out of the three of us. Um, and I think that she struggled a lot with, you know, like trauma and that kind of thing. And like there was a period in her life where she really, really struggled a lot. And, you know, she was very violent and she would cry all the time and she wanted her mom. And, you know, there was nobody to really explain that to her. And like, you know, they would beat her up instead and that kind of thing. Um, and what I think, like eventually what I realized is what my sister needed needed was a listening ear what she needed was somebody to actually listen to her you know I was a child and I I didn't know how to actually deal with that Uh, but also like there was no support within the community to actually like meet her and say let me you know provide the support that you actually need and that kind of thing um my brother also actually at some point I noticed that he struggled a lot you know because their dad you know like left them as well you know like they still have their dad and you know he's still alive but he also walked away um and I think like there was a time when I think like my brother really really struggled with that you know like he really struggled with I think you know like just like his father leaving him and that kind of thing and you know I could tell like every time he mentioned his dad or like the dad he would just not want to even like engage and like he would storm out of the house and that kind of thing but I think like there was a lot that was maybe not working well uh, but there was also like the system was just 
just not equipped um, to actually provide the support that we actually needed. Um, but not even just that, I mean, like there is still so many, you know, people that aren't able to get an education. Um, you know, there is still so many people in my community that do not have clean drinking water, they do not have electricity, you know, like they do not have, you know, any and all of these things, um, you know, like their reality and that of their kids, you know, will probably be the same and like it will never change and that kind of thing. Um, but yet for me, like looking at how much, you know, like I have grown, you know, like you, you talked of growth, but like how much I have grown by like getting an education and being exposed to like different cultures and that kind of thing. Like I want, you know, like I want to give that to everybody. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so giving back um, is obviously very important to you and, and, and uh, mm -hmm. kudos for doing that because a lot of times there's sacrifice that goes along with that. And, um, yeah. and if you're, if, if, if you understand that and if you're purpose driven, um, mm -hmm. you know that the sacrifice means something and that eventually, you know, um, mm -hmm. it pays off in, in whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever way it, way that does. Um, what is next for you? What's, what, what is, what's your next goal and dream? I think in terms of like what's next, I mean, I do know for sure that I do want to stay within East Africa. I think um, like I think the need is quite big and I think like there is, um, you know, like a lot that needs to be done here. Um, so I think like, I mean, I, I cannot tell you exactly what I do want to do, but I know that I do want to continue, you know, partnering with communities. Um, I do want to continue to sort of like see, you know, like um, see like people's lives change. You know, um, I've always like my passion is actually in education still. Um, and I'm not convinced that the education system, um, mostly, you know, like back home is actually designed in such a way that it actually helps to transform the individual. Um, to me, it seems like, you know, the education system is really like, it's really about like memorizing stuff, you know, getting the exams done and like you're out of there. But it's not really about like learning and growing and like, you know, transforming the individual in that sense, like giving you that different perspective and, you know, giving you those different, I don't know, like passions and visions and that kind of thing. Um, so I think for me, like, ideally, that's where I would like to see myself going to, you know, like where I sort of like, you know, work and work with communities, partner with people to say, to ask the, you know, like the big question of like, you know, how can education actually become educative, you know, how can education actually become transformative, you know, um, and I think for me, like, I'm convinced that, you know, with the transformative education, then a lot of the things that we face today, you know, in society with like, you know, poverty and corruption and lack of innovation and, you know, all of these things, like, I do believe that we would actually be able to, like, you know, work towards solving and, you know, sort of like, you know, transforming some of these issues and that kind of thing. That, I tell you what, I think you hit it right on the head uh, here in America. I think our public school system is in need of um, being reinvented uh, so that mm -hmm. we, we can have transformative education and trans mm -hmm. change people's mindsets and, and let them see opportunity and the things that they would know instead of just going to school to get a job because that's exactly do. they go to school to get a job and we're, we're missing it and I think I think your insight is very 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 good so stay with that um, last thing I want to talk to you about because um, you've been great today um, Thank you. Uh, I know that faith, you know, faith is an important uh, part of your journey and um, mm -hmm. I'm paralysis to purpose. I'm not afraid to talk about faith with people. And I've had Buddhists on here. I've had atheists on here. I've had Christians on here. And I want mm -hmm. you to um, uh, talk a little bit about the role that faith has had in your life. Yeah. Um, so that's been a very big, yeah, that's been a very big part actually of my life. I have to say, um, I think like that for me before even like, 
the education before meeting my parents, before having all these connections and partnerships and that kind of thing. Um, I think like for me, faith was the very, very fast source of hope for me. Um, and like the very, very fast thing that like made me hold on, you know, that, you know, sort of like made me hold on. Um, and it's just been, I mean, it's really, I can't really like even begin to like talk about it all, but I think for me, just like reading the Bible, but even just like getting like the central message of, you know, just like hope and, you know, holding on and, you know, like being able to like, you know, look forward to like a better future and that kind of thing. Um, I think for me, like that was something that I really, really held on. Um, but then also I think like, there, there were a lot of things in my life that happened um, that I think, you know, could be explained that way by some people or they could actually be called coincidence and that kind of thing. Uh, but I think for me, I like to actually associate those things to, you know, faith. Um, so for me, even little things like being able to actually meet my family and, you know, be able to actually have, you know, somebody that I can actually call, you know, like, you know, like a mom and, uh, and a dad, um, that for me was something that I really, really longed for. You know, that for me was something that I really, really wanted and I felt hard, you know, like when that actually happened. Um, there was a lot of moments I think that I really wanted to give up and I think I would have been justified it would have been right for me to give up uh, but I held on you know because I knew that I actually was not alone um, there were moments when I was absolutely alone you know I felt alone and I felt confused and I wasn't sure I would do it I wasn't sure that I would actually make it through to the next day or like you know to whatever to the end of whatever was going on and that kind of thing uh, but I held on again I think and I think I held on because of just like this um, I held on because of like the hope that you know like the gospel and just like the, you know, like this, just like the, you know, the Bible in general gives and that kind of thing. Um, and not just that, I think for me, it goes back to, so the book of First John for me is probably one of like the most impactful, you know, like books for me in the Bible. Um, it's also one of like the smallest ones, you know, like it's very, very small. But I think for me, like I really, really like that. And I like one sentence in that book in particular, and it says, no one has seen God, but God is love. Um, and I think for me, maybe it's my personality, maybe it's who I am, but I think for me, like love, being able to love and support people, being able to like provide and give that unconditional love for me, like that has been one of the most, um, like I think for me, like that's one of like the most um, important things, you know, like important things in life, you know, um, and not even just that, I think like being able to, and this is, I think like the role that really faith has played. Um, I think like I'm, I've always known that I'm loved. Uh, you know, by people, by friends, you know, by my siblings and that kind of thing. Uh, but I think like it took me a very, 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 very long time to actually accept that love. Um, and I think like faith and like being able to like read the Bible and like being able to just like see the example of Jesus and like how he loved so deeply, you know, so unconditionally, so fully every single time. And like when he interacted with people who were, you know, supposedly like the outcasts and like the sinners and that kind of thing, like his reaction, I feel like for me, every single time was meeting them with love, you know, every single time was saying, you know, I see you, I know you, and I still love you. Um, before we end, um, if there, there are people who will listen to this podcast literally around the world, um, if you had one message, one opportunity um, to tell the listeners something, what would that one thing be? But I think for me, it would be to say that if and when you have the opportunity to love, you should love. Um, but also in the same way that um, if and when you have the opportunity to be given love, you should actually accept love. Well, thank you for that and for the opportunity to interview today, interview you today on Paralysis to Purpose to Podcast. Uh, this has been worth the technical issues we had and getting <laughs> all done and cameras not working and freezing up the screen. Uh, but this, mm -hmm. this is great. I know that you don't have a website and, and you're not on social media, but um, uh, you know, I think that there's an opportunity 
and a platform for you to share your story. And um, you should you should consider that um, because I know mm -hmm. there are probably um, good little girls um, throughout Africa um, who need to hear your message and hear your story. So if there's anything that we can do from paralysis to purpose uh, to help you with that, you know, let us know. Um, so thank you thank again you for, so your, much. for your time, Catherine. And until the next episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast, I'm David Cooks reminding you that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure. You can do anything you put your mind to. Thanks for tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit davidcooksspeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks. And it was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. I had the potential of, of becoming a, a, a multi-world champion. I, I beat many uh, multi-world champions and, and I gave it up. Next time on Paralysis to Purpose. I am so excited to have Hector Cologne with us today. But that same dedication, determination, and discipline, it took me to be a champion boxer, is the same dedication, determination, and discipline that I apply into my life, striving for excellence in everything that I do, whether it be as a husband, as a father, or as a CEO. I got that drive uh, from boxing. Paralysis to purpose.